Father in heaven, we praise you for the glory of this day, for how much more we praise you for the glory of your Son who has risen indeed. And so because he has risen, would you help us to hear him speaking to us as we look at this passage of scripture. Amen. What is it that is going on in the world? What's going on? And you look at the world, and it's, it's chaotic, isn't it? There's a pandemic, there's unrest, there's climate issues, there's population issues, there's political issues, there's economic issues, there are just issues everywhere. And when, when you try to make sense of the world, it doesn't make sense, does it? There isn't any rhyme or any reason. There's no big picture. Uh, and without a big picture, without a centre of gravity, us as individuals have to ask, like, how do we know what to do? No, what... what What's our job description? It's a bit of a novelty question, I think. I wonder if people are even asking questions like that. What are we here for? Or whether we just get rushed into chasing pots of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I think we do want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, but it just so quickly shrinks down into something so small. And we chase what we think is happiness, but it's not tethered to anything. It can't be held. So maybe we just stop asking, is there any purpose in all of this? What is going on in the world? Better question, of course, is what is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? And my sons love to play with Lego. Um, and so we have a lot of Lego in our house. We have Lego everywhere. Every nook and cranny is full of Lego pieces. Uh, and so to help out with that, a few weeks ago, we bought a huge kind of plastic tub which can fit all of the Lego in. So when it comes to tidy up time, you throw all the Lego into the tub, into this big box. And they, they just sit there, all this Lego jumbled up together. They're, they're not connected. They're, it's a chaotic mess like the world. And then my, my son Daniel will come and he will start to rummage through the blocks. You know, that noise of Lego kind of jumbling up together. He disturbs the mess even more, but he's searching for something. It's quite fascinating to watch him because he knows what he's looking for. I've got no idea what he's doing, but he's, he's searching and he, he finally finds the bit he's looking for and he brings it out. And then he dives in again and he, he searches and he finds another bit and he brings it out. And, and gradually out of the mess, you see that he's building something that is awesome. Our God is not done with the world. And, and it looks so confused to us. But God is the master architect and he's, he's rummaging through the wreckage and he's picking out the pieces and he's connecting them together. And when he rummages, it feels like things maybe get messed up even more as the pieces get more deeply disturbed. But he finds the piece that he's looking for, the bit he has in mind, and he draws it out and he adds it to the master project. And he's building and he's building and he's building. And out of the muddle, he's building something beautiful. And, and if that's the case, wouldn't you want to be part of it? Wouldn't you want to stop chasing emptiness, stop the kind of mindless meandering for meager rewards and, and be part of the master's project? Well, this morning we come to the end of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And we will see, as we look at this, first of all, Jesus' worth and then Jesus' work. And of course, we will ask about Jesus and us, what that means for us. So first of all, let's think about Jesus' worth. Uh, prior to this, uh, the few days previous to this, as Matthew has told us, we've seen Jesus betrayed, handed over to Pilate, condemned, crucified. He died, he was buried. And then, as we saw last week, on the third day, as he had said, 
He broke through death. He came out the other side into unbounded life. And then our passage begins in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they saw him. They, they saw him. Now, for all of the, the kind of the, the mind-boggling questions we must ask about the resurrection and all the kind of world-turning implications, uh, as we saw last week, as Matthew tells about it, he focuses on the real heart of it. The beating heart of the resurrection is that you will see him. The glory of the resurrection is to be with him. And these disciples, now they see him. So what do you do? What did they do? They saw him and they worshipped. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. They saw him and they worshipped. Of course, they worshipped. What else could they do? Here was the one who they, they loved him so much and he meant so much to him and he was taken from them. And now, hope beyond all hope, he's exploded out of the gates of death. He's alive. There he is. They worshipped him. Of course, they did. Now, right at the beginning of Matthew's account, he flags up that this is where it's going to end. Right, right at the beginning, you remember the three kings, the, the, these, these three foreign rulers search for the boy Jesus. And when they find him, they give him their gifts and they worship. But even then, as a boy, he was drawing the worship of nations. And how much more now that he's completed his mission, he's completed his saving work that he came into the world to do given his life as a ransom for many, been nailed to the cross, where in that darkness he absorbed in his holy body all of the anger of God against the sin of his people. And then he smashed through the barrier that shut his people out from happiness, smashed down those gates of death. And at the empty tomb he appeared to the two Marys. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And now the eleven see him, and they worship. And he says, all authority. All authority is mine. All authority is his. Now, to get the real weight of that, we need to go back to that passage that Paul read at the beginning of our service, the, the prophet Daniel. And he had this dream vision. You can read about it in Daniel 7. It's a terrifying dream that Daniel has. He sees these, these kind of grotesque monsters emerging out of the sea. They, they, they frighten him. They're, they're lurching and they're leering and they're the chaotic powers of destruction. Daniel asks for an explanation of what it means and he's told that these monsters represent successive kingdoms on earth. These great superpowers that will dominate history and will rise one after another to consume and destroy each other. And then in Daniel's vision, he sees into heaven. In his vision, he sees the throne of thrones. He sees the ancient of days ruling over all, a river of fire. He sees 10,000 upon 10,000 angels around the throne, and he sees it's time for judgment. The books are opened. It's time for things to be brought to account. And as he watches this heavenly scene, he sees there is this figure approaching, this figure coming on the clouds. He says it's like a son of man. And he sees this figure enter into heaven. This figure approaching the ancient of days, led right into that burning beauty of pure holiness. And Daniel recalls that this son of man, he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You know, my friends, we are, we are lulled and we are dulled 
when we think that this is all that there is. The things that we see around us, the stuff of life. There's this fatal melody that constantly plays, that deafens us to the reality. And we can hear passage like this passage in Daniel. We've heard it twice this morning. And, and it can feel to us like nonsense. And yet without this, there, there really is no sense in anything. We've got to fight to hear what is true and cut through the deceptive fog that is around us all the time. And the reason is that the man of Daniel's vision is the Son of Man. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died, the one who was raised, and the one who said, now that vision of Daniel is about me. I've done it. I I am the one who goes to the Ancient of Days. He goes there clothed in our humanity, goes into the presence of burning brilliance, and he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And over all the the kind of the competing, conflicted powers in the world, there is one power that goes above them all, one power that exceeds every one. There is one kingdom that will outlast all of them. It is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that has now been ushered in on earth through the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Son of God has been born Son of Man. The Son of God has come into our humanity and in our our humanity he's humbled himself to death, even to death on a cross, even to that cursed death, that sin-bearing death, that price-paying death, that punishment-absorbing death. He has died as he took on the sins of his people and now he's been raised, raised up all the way, all the way up to heaven and given the name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before him. All the nations will worship him. That's what God is doing in the world. It's what God has been doing right since the beginning, right since creation. Right since he commissioned mankind to spread the rule of heaven on earth. And we messed it up straight away. We tripped up at the first hurdle. Sin came in. But when sin came in, grace abounded more and more. God called a man called Abraham. And he said to Abraham, your descendant, through your descendant, all the nations will be blessed. Your descendant, the Son of Man, will be the one who receives all authority so that all nations will be blessed as they worship him. And Jesus Christ is that descendant. What God is doing in the world is building the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of King Jesus, gathering from all nations, from all languages, gathering and bringing together and cleansing them and forgiving them and renewing them and making them into citizens of heaven. God at the moment is rummaging through the wreckage. He's been doing it since Jesus' resurrection. Picking out his people and putting them together and connecting them into the eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. So when the disciples saw him, when they saw the risen Jesus, they worshipped him. Of course they did. What do you reckon? Are you in on this? You want a bit of it? Did you notice the but in verse 17? It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What do you make of that? What do you make of it? Well, Jesus and his worth. Let's think about Jesus and his work. Uh, Some people are are kind of big picture, visionary type people, aren't they? They kind of say, we're going to build this great mansion. It's going to have 50 rooms and it's going to have a a helipad and and a diving board from the top floor into a swimming pool below. And there'll be an underground cinema and it'll be great. And and the next person isn't like that. They're a bit more detail-y and they say, yeah, great, but how? How do you do it? What, what materials do we use? What's the building plan? We need to get an architect in. We need to do some, some, some plans and, and, and make it happen. 
It's, it's a great, wonderful vision, the building of king, the kingdom of heaven on earth. But how does it happen? How does it come and how does it grow? This great all nations, transnational group of disciples growing and increasing. How does it work? Well, Jesus has already told us back in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Church means those who are gathered to Jesus. Jesus will build his church. He will gather his people into his heavenly kingdom and nothing can stop it. It's Jesus' work. Jesus, now risen from the dead, now from the throne of power, it is his work. And we see it here in our passage. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now, let's not mishear what Jesus is saying, because it could sound like Jesus is the kind of boss who sits in his office with his feet up, and he says, go on, go, go away and get on with the work. Um, I'm pretty embarrassed about my hands. I'm not really, I'm just making a point. Um, I've got really, really smooth skin, like horrible kind of office hands. And whenever I do anything manual, like screwing a screw, I tear the skin, I get blisters so easily. It's pathetic, terrible. Um, my hands aren't work-hardened. Not like Ben's hands, they're probably pretty rough. Jesus' hands aren't like my hands. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he's not saying I'm going to contract out the labor to someone else. He will get his hands dirty. So when he says to his disciples, go and make disciples, he quickly adds, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is carrying out his church building kingdom coming work. Jesus does it in and through his disciples. He doesn't send them from him. He sends them with him. He's with them. He's the one doing the work. It's his work. Christ Jesus is building his church. Christ Jesus is calling all the nations into his kingdom through his disciples. The disciple making, that is the inbreaking of heaven's everlasting reign on earth. Disciple making. He says to disciples, go and make disciples it's probably worth us asking for a moment what are disciples seeing as that seems quite key to this there are lots of ways we can describe believers aren't there believers is one of them christians those who have faith we've all probably got our own kind of preferred way of of describing it i don't know how often we use the word disciple sounds a bit strange maybe for us if someone says no what why do you live how you live? Why do you go to church? Why do you read the Bible? Would we say, well, because I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's quite the language we might use. Maybe we do. But it's a good question, isn't it? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, what is it? What does it mean to be a disciple? This passage is pretty clear, isn't it? And it says there are two parts to making disciples. Go and make disciples. How do you do it? By baptism and obedience. Now, Jesus says in verse 19, you make disciples by baptizing them into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. That's how you make disciples. You baptize them. You dunk them into water. How does that make a disciple? Well, Jesus says baptism is a, it's a form of naming ceremony. A bit like when a baby gets born. Um, you go to the registry office and you register the birth. You formally record the name of the child. The child's already been born. But that child isn't officially recognized as a citizen of the nation until its name is recorded, until it's named. And baptism is like that. And Jesus is saying that disciples cannot be hidden. He says you're to go and you're to baptize disciples. You're to, you're to make disciples by baptizing them. 
So when someone comes to new life, you're to officially recognize them by naming them in baptism. It's on the basis of Jesus' authority. He has all authority. And on that basis, he authorizes his disciples to go and baptize others. You, you can't baptize yourself. That's quite clear, isn't it? What's being um, told here is that when someone hears about Jesus and they repent of their sin and they trust their life to Christ, other disciples are to see that and say, let's have a naming ceremony. Let's, let's make that faith public. Make a disciple, make a public follower of Jesus by baptizing them into the name. And what is the name? Well, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This really gets right into the fabric of what it is to be a disciple. Notice it's to baptize into one name. It doesn't say baptize into the names. There's one name. Father, Son, and Spirit. Because that's who God is. One who is three. Three who is one. God who is Trinity. And God who is one God in three persons. A disciple is named as one who belongs to that God. He bears the name of that God, the triune God. Talking about the Trinity is pretty baffling. Hurts our heads. Um, But however much it does that, however much we wrestle with it, there just is no other God. God is one who is Father, Son, and Spirit. To be a Christian, to be a disciple, is to bear that name, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And and it says something profound about the disciple. Because you see, in Matthew's Gospel, there's one other occasion where Matthew speaks about Father, Son, and Spirit at the same point. And that occasion is in Matthew 3, when Jesus himself was baptised. But back then, Jesus asked John to baptize him, and it says Jesus went under the water as he came out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He pictured that moment, what's happening. We have there the Lord Jesus, the Son of God in flesh, in the water, the Spirit descending on him, the Father speaking over him, declaring, My beloved Well, now that Jesus has completed his saving mission, gone through death into life, received all authority, he says, you go and you make disciples by baptizing them into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. So so when someone turns to faith in Jesus, what happens is, in a sense, they stand there in the water with Christ. The, The Holy Spirit has descended from heaven upon that person, bringing to them a living connection to Jesus Christ, the same Spirit who fills him, fills believers, Binding them together. So, so in, in baptism, a, a, a person is kind of picturing themselves um, standing there in the water and um, taking the place of Christ, as it were. Not in his place, but in him. United by the Spirit to him. Christ who is always with his people by the Spirit. And, and in that place, God the Father declares over all who are in Christ, my beloved. He says, with you. I am very, very pleased. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, it means you are united to Jesus the Son by the Spirit and the object of the Father's love. That is a disciple. Baptism into the name identifies the people for whom that is their reality. Disciples are baptized. What about you? If you've not been baptized, you need to ask why not. Ask yourself, why haven't you been baptized? You see the flow of what Jesus says here. Jesus is king of heaven. Those who belong to his kingdom get marked out by baptism. It's like a certificate of citizenship. Without that certificate, you can't be treated as a citizen. 
For those who are saved by Jesus and secured by the Spirit and loved by the Father, they're baptized. So why wouldn't anyone not want to be baptized? If you want to talk more about baptism, please speak to Paul or myself or anyone. Just speak to someone. Um, but come and speak to one of the elders. That'd be great. We'd love to talk with you. There are two parts to making disciples. Baptism. Jesus makes disciples as he goes with his disciples to tell about him, call people to repentance and faith, and when it happens, to identify them through baptism. Baptism is the first step. And secondly, obedience. Verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It begins with baptism. That's the entry point. And then a disciple is a learner, not a learned. That's right, a learner. Still learning. Not someone who has arrived, but someone on a journey, learning from Jesus. A disciple basically is somebody who has committed themselves to the person and teaching of someone else. A a disciple doesn't decide for themselves what to do or how to behave or what best suits them. A disciple listens to what Jesus teaches, accepts what Jesus teaches, because Jesus teaches it. Disciples are learners, always learning, always learning to obey what he's commanded. So we should ask ourselves, those of us who might be quick to say we are disciples... Now, would someone look at your life and say, well, that person obviously is a pupil. They are a learner. They're they're learning from someone else. They're they're getting their instruction from somebody else. They're they're following the way of somebody else. Now, obeying all of Christ's commands covers all of life. Obeying him when we're struggling and when we're working and when we're managing life and when we're, we're in friendships and in families and in dealing with our money and in society. His instructions cover it all. But, of course, maybe the obvious point here is that teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded includes this very passage where the Lord Jesus commands, go and make disciples. How? By baptizing them and teaching them. But it's a weighty command, isn't it? Out of all of Jesus' commands. All authority, he says, has been given to me. Not, Not a bit of authority, not even most authority, but all of it. And on that basis, his command is, go and make disciples. So what is God doing in the world? The world hasn't been abandoned. The the monsters of chaos and destruction are not going to last. They will come to an end, and they will come to an end because Jesus is the Son of Man who has entered into heaven. He's he's been given all authority, and he has a kingdom that will, will last forever. And he's building it. He's now building his church. That is what God is doing in all the world. He's gathering his people from all the nations. The Father uniting his people to his Son uh, by by the Spirit bringing to them the saving work of Jesus. God is rummaging through the mess all the time, bringing out the pieces, connecting them together, building this awesome kingdom of heaven. That's what God is doing. And and Jesus says, I'm doing this by sending you, my disciples. I'm sending my disciples to go and make disciples. That is your purpose in the world. So if you are a disciple, by definition, that is your purpose. What do you reckon? Are you in on this? I wonder where disciple making comes on your agenda. I wonder if you find it daunting. I'd be surprised if you don't, really. Well, well let, me, let me show you something that I think is an astonishing encouragement in this passage. Come back to verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
this, this doubting means that they hesitated. They're, they're not sure how to respond. The disciples in the Gospels are always slow learners. That's quite encouraging for us, isn't it? That the last thing we've seen of these disciples is them running away from Jesus in his hour of need, doing exactly what they had committed not to do. And this is the next time they see him. How is he going to treat them? How is he going to respond to them now? Now, verse 17 shows the disciples as a mixed bag, a bag of, of people who are worshipping and wobbling. It's great, isn't it? Don't you love that? Because isn't that so often how we are? And, and you have to wonder whether verse 18 isn't directly responding to those who are feeling very wobbly. But Jesus doesn't say to them, you're no good. I only want to, want to send the best of the best. And if you're, if you're wobbling, you can just wobble off. He doesn't say that, does he? Jesus says, I've got the power. And these disciples, when they're feeling unsteady and confused and hesitant and doubting, Jesus says, fine, because all the authority is mine. And the astonishing bit is Jesus then says, go and make disciples. Talking to those who worship and wobble. Jesus is building his church by sending out weak and hesitant people. Because it's his work. And he promises, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is Jesus' work and he is in it until it's done. The, the success of this mission is not based on the resources of the disciples. There's, there's only 11 of them here. Just 11. The whole church grew from there. And, and they're a mixture of worshippers and wobblers. Success isn't based on their abilities. It's not based on their resources. Success is guaranteed, though, because it's Jesus' work. And he's promised that he will stick with it until it's done. His kingdom is the only one that will last until the end of the age and beyond. That's an astonishing encouragement, isn't it? He sends out worshippers and wobblers. But let's not miss the challenge of that too. Now Jesus still says to the hesitant disciple, go and make disciples. He say, don't go in your own strength. Don't, don't think you need to have all the answers before you go. Don't think you have to be like somebody else. Don't think it depends on you. Because Jesus has the power. It's his work. But he sends you. So don't use your hesitancy or your doubting or your wobbling as an excuse. I think we easily do that, don't we? Now, if we just step back and ask ourselves honestly, what is it that holds us back from throwing ourselves more and more into the work of making disciples? I wonder if fear is one of the first things we come up with. It is for me. Now, we don't know how to do it, do we? We've got all those disappointments of the past that we think about. We think there aren't any opportunities. We begin to pile up our excuses. What is it that holds you back? Whatever it is, don't excuse yourself. Maybe we can think we don't need to get in on this. We can think maybe that we're not able to get in on it. But Jesus commands both the worshippers and the wobblers. Because this is what God is doing in the world. The question is, are you with him? If you're not with him, well, then you're not with him. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Are you going to obey? Let's pray. Our Jesus, we praise you. The power is yours. We praise you that you send the worshippers and the wobblers. And please, would you help us to obey?